Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. Well, hello, my friends. So glad to be with you once again here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast, wherever you're at. You could be working out, driving in your car, traveling somewhere, who knows, but thank you for tuning in as you and I continue to open God's word in the gospels and learning the life of Jesus Christ in a chronological way. Now, I got to tell you, in my personal study, I'm pretty much at the very end where we're at the resurrection period. So I'm so excited to get into the passion week with you in the next few weeks and it's hard to believe I'm looking at the numbers and as this podcast continues to grow, as we continue to put more out there, we're on podcast number 86. And today we're going to be looking at Luke 19 verses 1 through 28. And we're going to be encountering a person on today's podcast that you know, I'm sure you do. His name is Zacchaeus. Now, obviously this is a guy that most of us, even growing up in Sunday school, despised, did not like, but had a good ending. But we oftentimes look at the negative and not the positive. So hopefully you can see something today that you've never seen before in the life of Zacchaeus and apply that to your life. But the amazing thing is oftentimes when we do talk about Zacchaeus, we tend to just leave it there. But in verses 11, all the way through 28, Jesus tells a parable of the Minas. And I believe he does so because he wants to draw out what just occurred with Zacchaeus. So oftentimes, again, we just see the conversion of Zacchaeus, and that's awesome. But we fail to connect the parable of the Minas to that particular incident. So that's what we're going to be covering right now on today's podcast. Now, before we do it, to bring up to speed, remember, Jesus had just left Jericho in Mark chapter 10, verse 46, and he's heading to Jerusalem, according to Mark 10, 32. Now, on his way, remember, to Jericho, He's encountered by Bartimaeus, a blind man with a, with a friend of his in Matthew 20 and Mark 10 and Luke 18. That was in podcast 85. And Jesus heals the blind man. Now, remember, as these things, as we're piecing them together chronologically, it almost kind of speaks to where Jesus is at in his ministry as he's going to Jerusalem to give up his life. And so Bartimaeus uh, a figure that is mentioned in like, as, as I mentioned before in these synoptic gospels, but also portrays in a spiritual way, the darkness that was clouding people. And he's here to bring us everlasting life, right? To shine light in the darkness. So that was a beautiful picture of the gospel when we looked at Bartimaeus. So now we pick things up where Jesus, we're told here now in Luke 19, verse one, he enters Jericho. And decides to stay here for a while. Now, remember, Jesus, he arrived at the other Jericho, the one that was closest to the Jordan Valley, which was about maybe 10 miles from Jerusalem. Now, most scholars believe this was the Jericho that Joshua defeated. Barclay, in his commentary, writes, Jericho was a prosperous city. It had a great palm forest and world-famous balsam groves which perfumed the air for miles around its gardens of roses were known far and wide men called it the city of palms josephus called it a divine region the fattest in palestine the romans carried its dates and balsam to worldwide trade and fame end quote 
Now, of course, if you have a wealthy city, you're going to have wealthy people there and you're going to have people there like Zacchaeus who are going to take advantage of that wealth. So here in verse two, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which, which literally means righteous one. And he was a chief tax collector and was very rich. Now, this term chief means supervisor and the term for rich conveys an idea of having not just money, but a lot of property. A.T. Robertson writes, Zacchaeus was the head of the tax collections in this region, a sort of commissioner of taxes who probably had other publicans serving under him. Now, what's interesting when you look at what we're told about Zacchaeus, which is very little, but then you look at that region at that time and what Barclay's saying here, literally what Zacchaeus did, his kind of business was not like a pyramid scheme. It was tax farming. So what he would do is he would go out there in this position working for Rome. So basically he turned himself uh, to, to Rome, over to Rome saying, I will serve you. I will use my specialty to help fund your empire. So he would charge more than the Roman tax in order for him to get paid. And so the Rome, Romans were like, you do, you get us our money and you do whatever you need to do to your people. You're a Jew. You know how to reach your people. But the problem was there was no limit to taxation. So it would vary, which explains why the Jews hated Zacchaeus so much and other tax collectors he was in charge of. And so it was almost like a business where he would get people into this business. And the more obviously tax collectors he had, the more money that Zacchaeus would be able to pocket himself. Now, remember leading up to this, Jesus had encountered an unlikely person who was not fit to stand within the Jewish community. And that was Bartimaeus. And yet Jesus goes to him and Jesus heals him. And now we see that Jesus encounters another person that's despised by the Jews. And yet he's determined to meet Jesus. Now, the other thing that's interesting about Zacchaeus before we jump into the encountership is remember Zacchaeus responds differently than who? Do you remember another wealthy person? The rich young ruler, right? who was unwilling to give up his wealth for God in Luke 18, 18 through 25. So there was not a redemption story with the rich young ruler. He knew everything, but yet he was not willing to do the one thing that he knew, I believe, that he should have done. And that was to give up his possessions and follow after Jesus. But now we're introduced to Zacchaeus who does exactly that. Notice in verse 3, and Zacchaeus was seeking literally without success to see who Jesus was. But on the account of the crowd, he could not because he was a small person or literally he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree. Now remember a sycamore tree had short trunks and they had broad lateral branches that would extend from the trunks. So they're easy to jump on and climb in a progression. So he does that. He gets on a sycamore tree to see Jesus for he was about to pass by. Now, what's interesting is that it was not common for wealthy Jewish men to climb a tree in public. So the fact that Zacchaeus does that, remember, he is the chief guy. He is the supervisor. People hate his guts. He's a betrayer of his people, even to the Romans. But notice he doesn't care. He doesn't anyway because he wanted to see Jesus. Now, this is a man who has no friends it wasn't like he was trying to pursue Jesus to become Jesus's friend. He just wanted to see, get a glimpse of Jesus. And that was enough to Zacchaeus. Again, we don't know the condition of his heart up to this point, what has been taking place in his life. Luke introduces him 
um, as a man who knows he's entering his city and he wants to see Jesus. But in verse five, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up, literally he had full knowledge of who Zacchaeus was. And he says to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. Now, this is the only time in the gospels where Jesus invites himself to dine at someone else's home. This is significant because it was an ill-mannered gesture in that culture. You didn't invite yourself over. It's like even still today, people don't tend to do that. You have to be invited. Now, remember, when you would dine with somebody, though, in that culture, you're becoming one with that person uh, in, in a very intimate way. There is a bond there. And so when you invite someone over, you don't break that invitation. So you're wondering, why did Jesus then invite himself to Zacchaeus' house? Well, Clearly, because it demonstrates the love that Jesus had for the marginalized. This is something we see over and over again in Luke chapter 5 and Luke chapter 7, now here in Luke chapter 19. Now, Zacchaeus, remember, he merely wanted to seek Jesus out and to look upon him, you know, as he pursued Jesus in the crowd that way. But yet, ultimately, here's a cool thing. And he goes back to Luke chapter 15 when It's about seeking that which is lost. Jesus was the one that was truly pursuing Zacchaeus in the midst of the crowd. He knew that he would encounter him at that sycamore tree. And I believe Jesus took that route specifically. He looks up to Zacchaeus in front of all these people because he wanted it to be a public spectacle because people knew who he was. And of course, everybody knew who Jesus was. So in verse six, Zacchaeus comes down, he hurries down to receive Jesus joyfully. Literally in the Greek, it carries the idea that he had such gladness. He was rejoicing. This is awesome, my friend, because it shows that no matter how much wealth, how much fame, how much riches you may have, in this case that Zacchaeus had, nothing in this world can bring that kind of joy. Only Jesus can give you that type of joy, that type of rejoicing, that type of gladness. But of course, here in verse seven, when the crowd, they saw all this, it says here that they grumbled, literally in the Greek, they expressed such discontentment. They were complaining about this saying, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So no doubt the crowd is stunned by this invitation of Jesus saying, hey, Zacchaeus, let's dine together. Let me bring my disciples over and let's have a feast tonight. That pretty much could have been interpreted by the crowd as Jesus condoning the behavior of Zacchaeus. So this is somewhat of a risk that Jesus is taking. But again, knowing our Savior, he does it to reach people who are lost. This isn't him compromising or condoning Zacchaeus' behavior as a supervisor who was doing the tax farming. This is a way, an opportunity that Jesus was going to utilize to teach Zacchaeus about his love for him. And so we're told here in verse eight, and Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give, literally in Greek, by way of restoration to the poor. And if I have defrauded, literally, if I've harassed, if I've blackmailed anyone, if I've extorted anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now what's interesting, what Zacchaeus says, and when you look at the Greek, Zacchaeus' actions were immediate. In the Greek, it's in present tense. So he was so moved with conviction that he told Jesus that he would resolve to give back more than what he took from the people. Remember when Jesus said earlier in Luke 18, verse 17, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Zacchaeus right here at this moment, my friends, remember he was already climbing up, climbing up a sycamore tree 
doing something that wealthy men didn't do and taking Jesus up for the invitation despite what people would think and then him humbling himself like a child. One commentary writes, under the Mosaic law, if a thief voluntarily confessed his crime, he had to restore what he took, add one fifth to it and bring a trespass offering to the Lord according to Leviticus 6, one through seven. If he stole something he could not restore, he had to repay fourfold, Exodus 22, verse 1. And if he was caught with the goods, he had to repay double, Exodus 22, 4. Zacchaeus did not quibble over the terms of the law. He offered to pay the highest price because his heart had truly been changed. And that's why here in verse 9, Jesus says to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to his house, since he also is the son of Abraham. Now remember, Jesus was not saying that Zacchaeus was saved because he gave back money. That's not how people get saved. Some may believe that, but that's not doctrinally true in the scriptures. Zacchaeus was saved from his sin. Why? Because he placed his faith in Jesus as Savior. And as such, what did he do? Zacchaeus, in repentance, he made restitution for all of his past crimes Jesus is the one who forgives us of our crimes, of our sins. But in repentance, there will be restitution, that we will bear fruit of that type of repentance. Now, this phrase, son of Abraham, is an interesting phrase because despite his betrayal of his own people, Jesus still identifies Zacchaeus as a faithful Jew. And then verse 10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So it wasn't emphasizing what Zacchaeus had done. So Jesus wasn't saying, I came here to help you guys give more of yourself. He says, no, I came. His first advent was to seek and to save the lost, to give up my life. This was the mission of Jesus. Luke 15, three through seven, eight through 10, 11 through 32. Look at those parables in Luke 15. It's about Jesus coming to seek and to save that which is lost. He said in Luke 4, 18 through 19, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Howard Marshall writes, here the purpose of the coming of Jesus is fully and finally summed up. As a shepherd goes and looks for lost sheep to rescue from danger, so Jesus as a son of man seeks and saves lost people. So as we reflect on the life of Zacchaeus, my friends, think about this. If if Zacchaeus, as greedy and selfish as he was for who knows how long of his life, but if he could repent, how about you? Or even think about what wealth or riches, what idols do you have in your life that you need to repent from? Or if you've stolen from someone, if you've robbed someone of something, you need to give it back. There needs to be restitution, just like we saw here with Zacchaeus. Now, the second event here, the parable of the Minas in Luke 19, 11 through 27, this parable is given right then and there in the house of Zacchaeus. Notice in verse 11, as they heard these things, Jesus proceeded, meaning he continued with focus. Literally, he takes this incident of Zacchaeus repenting and he wants to tell a parable about it so he can explain more about his kingdom. So it says, because they supposed, literally they were hoping, but they weren't completely certain that the kingdom of God was about to appear, literally to become visible immediately. 
So the disciples, remember, they're anticipating a climactic event that would usher in a revolution of Jesus' kingdom. Now, after all, Jesus had, remember, been talking about his coming kingdom for quite some time. You go back to Luke 17, 20 through 21, Luke 18, 16 through 17, and Luke 18, 24 through 25. But instead, he tells him this parable here at Zacchaeus' house of the Minas prior to entering Jerusalem. And the reason for this, I believe, is because, remember, up to this point, the disciples were getting into arguments about who the greatest was. John and James, even with their mothers, we talked about in our previous podcast, used the opportunity to say, hey, Jesus, we want you to give us the left and the right side of authority that we can rule with you in your kingdom. We, we're deserving of this. That was happening. And then they see this man who everyone despised and he repents. So Jesus leverages this parable as a preparatory step of the challenges that they would face without him though. He's saying right now, you guys are thinking that I'm gonna establish my kingdom. That's not gonna be the case. I'm gonna give up my life and then I'm gonna come back in the second advent and I will then establish my kingdom. But you guys are gonna be sent out. There's gonna be a period of time when I'm not gonna be here. This will usher the church age with the power of the Holy Spirit and the spreading of my word and spreading the gospel. And you have to remain faithful to what I have called you to do, what I've given you. Now, the parable of the Minas is similar to the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, 14 through 30. John Martin in his commentary writes this, this parable brings to a close the section of Jesus's teaching in response to rejection in Luke 12, verse one, all the way to Luke 19, verse 27. It also concludes a subsection of Jesus' teaching about the coming kingdom and the attitudes of his disciples in Luke 17, 11, all the way to chapter 19, verse 27. Jesus' disciples should be like the grateful ex-leper in Luke 17, 11 through 19, persistence in prayer, Luke 18, 1 through 14, childlike faith and humility in Luke 18, 15 through 17, like the former blind man, Luke 18, 35 through 43, and like Zacchaeus in Luke 19, 1 through 10, as opposed to the rich ruler, in Luke 18, 18 through 25, end quote. So the parable of the Minas kind of takes all of these accounts that has taken place. So it kind of shows the composition, the mindset of how Luke was manufacturing, how he was writing and developing his gospel account about Jesus. So it's safe to say that the parable of the Minas that we're about to get into right now is a culmination of all of this stuff, all the way back to Luke chapter 12. So here we go. In verse 12, it says, and he said, therefore, a nobleman, went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, it's important to understand that in that time, kings that lived in the provinces of Galilee and also Perea had to go to Rome to receive their kingdoms. Now, if you go back to 4 BC, Archelaus, he was the son of Herod the Great. He did that. He went to Rome to be granted Tetrarch of Judea. But when he received uh, this, this um, position of authority, there were great opposition from many Jews and subsequently, they moved his headquarters, Archelaus's headquarters, to Jericho, which happens to be the same place where Jesus is telling this parable. Now, in this parable, Jesus obviously is the nobleman, and he uses this to convey a greater meaning of his kingdom to come. So by using himself in this parable, but also taking Archelaus and what they did in history, I think people are understanding the significance of this. Now notice that the nobleman goes to a far country. So this implies a long interval time that we don't know when he's going to return. In verse 13, calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas, which equals 100 drachmas, which is three months of wage. And he says to each one of them, engage in business until I come. Literally, be involved in buying and selling until I return. 
So the master gives his servants the money. He gives them the resources they need. And he takes off for a long period of time. And he says, I'm going to come back. You don't know when, but until I do, continue to expand my future kingdom. Verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now notice these are citizens. These are not the servants that were given the minas. Now it would have been difficult if you think about the condition though that the servants were now in because there's chaos. So it'd be hard for them to conduct business because a lot of people didn't, wouldn't, wouldn't want to do business because they didn't like the nobleman that he was going to be coming back someday as their king. Now this is reflective of what was happening there because the citizens of Israel, the Jews, they were rejecting who? Jesus. Verse 15, now the nobleman, he returns and he's received his kingdom and he orders these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So despite the opposition of the citizens, the nobleman, now king, he receives his kingdom and he, he immediately orders for his subjects to present themselves and to show their new king now what they have done while he was gone. How, how have they invested the stuff he gave them, the minas, to advance the kingdom? What's interesting is, notice, he doesn't return and he fights a war with his citizens. Instead, what was of greater concern that he wanted to deal with was the people who were in charge of advancing his kingdom. So verse 16, the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little you shall have authority over 10 cities. Now notice the return on investment is considerably high. And I believe what Jesus is conveying in the parable is that this is reflective of faithful responsibility. This is about stewardship on earth. And if you take what God has given you and you invest it and you're about his kingdom and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you will be given a considerably high reward. So Jesus is telling his disciples that if they remain faithful in their service to him, great will be the reward in heaven. This phrase, well done, good servant, these will be the words spoken by Jesus, if you think about it, like he was conveying in this parable. These will, these will be words that each one of his children, you and me, my friend, if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're out there doing the work that God has called you to do, and you're plugged into the body of Christ, and you're spreading his, his gospel message, Jesus will say to you one day, as I'm looking forward to him saying to me, well done, good servant. He will reward us, his children, based on, on three, three main things. Number one, based on dependability, what you and I have been given. Two, profitability, what you and I have earned. And accountability, how you and I served our Lord. Barclay writes, the reward of work well done was more work to do. The great reward of God to the man who has satisfied the test is more trust. Essentially is if you're faithful with what God has given you, he's going to give you more things to be faithful with. And that's a great responsibility. Cultural Background Study Bible puts it like this. Although Jewish people were not supposed to charge interest directly to fellow Jews, everyone knew what interest was. Money lending was common in antiquity often through temples, which normally doubled as banks because deposits were trusted there. So this was a common practice. It wasn't like the nobleman gave them responsibilities that was unheard of. Verse 18 says, And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, verse 19, And you are to be over five cities. 
So notice now from the first to the second now that each of these servants have been given a minor, right? But the return on investment varies between them. So what does that tell us? It tells us that the rewards will match the labor and the profit. So even within Christianity, even when you look at all the different spiritual gifts and the faith that has been given to us and the work that we do in the Lord, we will profit differently because of our dependability and responsibility. So keep that in mind. Notice verse 20 now. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept, literally I held on to, and I laid it away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid. I was filled with dread. I was in a state of fear because of you, because you are a severe person, meaning you are strict in judgment. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Now, the third servant here expresses not just fear, but notice this servant also gives disapproval of his master, his king. He blames him for why he didn't invest his mina for profit. This reveals the prospect of all of God's children, meaning you either make a profit or you make a loss. There are no excuses when it comes to God calling you and I out. So the day when you and I stand before him, that day of judgment in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you and I will have to give an account. You can't make excuses. You can't say, well, God, you know, you didn't really give me enough faith or you didn't really give me enough time or, you know, it was because of this, it was because of that. And that's what this servant represents. The bottom line is you and I will receive our reward accordingly. This phrase, he laid away it in a handkerchief. One commentary writes, people often buried money in a strong box to keep it safe, but it would have been safe with the bankers and also increased. To bury it in a piece of cloth, however, was not even safe. It was considered careless. The money did not belong to the servant and presumably for this reason, he did not care what happened to it, end quote. So you see, this is ultimately the excuse. He was just careless because in the end, he didn't care. Verse 22, and the king said to him, I will condemn, meaning I will judge a person as guilty or liable with his own words. And he calls him a wicked servant here in verse 22, because he says, you knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Verse 23, why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. So the king calls out the stupidity of the servant. He doesn't reward him, but rather he rebukes him. He punishes him for failing to invest his mind wisely. It's as though the servant didn't even believe that his master was going to return and therefore ignored his responsibility to expand his master's kingdom. And he completely, totally missed out as a result of it. David Guzik writes in his commentary, this helps us to understand the plan of the master. It was not to make money by his servants, but to make character in them. He didn't need them to make money, but they needed to work with him to build their character. So the two servants noticed their character, but this servant, this third one, who neglected his responsibility, look at his character. So my friend, the question is, which servant are you? Because notice in verse 24, and the king said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the 10 minas. So here the third servant is stripped of any reward because he proved unfit, unable to manage the affairs of his king. And verse 25, and they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you, that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Wow, what is Jesus implying here in the parable? Simply put, what Jesus is saying is faithful obedience 
leads to more responsibility. Did you catch that? Faithful obedience leads to more responsibility. God's people may have different gifts. You and I may have different abilities, my friends, but guess what? Our job is the same. And what is that? It's to work by spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. This phrase, more will be given, this harkens back to when Jesus said in Luke 8, 18, take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And for the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. So it's not just in what we do, but it's what we hear. So for example, you taking time out to listen to this podcast, to grow in your knowledge of God's word and your appreciation, and, and you spend time worshiping him as you study his word, that right there is according to Luke 8, 18. So it's not just actually spreading the gospel, but it's also the intake. Are you faithful in studying God's word? Are you faithful in learning it for yourself and then taking it and teaching others? Now, verse 27 says, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, so now he's focusing on the citizens, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, this is gonna happen when Jesus returns. This will be his second advent. So notice this parable encompasses his first advent and then there's gonna be a time period where he's gone. So like right now we're in the church age and we're to be found faithful and do what God has called us to do. But then when he returns, there will be that judgment and he will reward his faithful servants. But in the process, he will also condemn those who have rejected him. And then he ends the parable and Luke writes here in verse 28 of Luke 19. And when he had said all of these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And this will be Jesus's final entry into Jerusalem. So as we close things out, my friends, the bottom line is this. Are you like Zacchaeus before he repents or are you like Zacchaeus after repentance? And when you take the parable of the Minas, keep in mind, are you faithfully doing what God has called you to do? So I pray this not only convicted you as you and I went through, because I know it certainly has convicted me. I just pray for all of us, for all of you listening around the world, that you will be found faithful. Do not be like that third servant. Don't make excuses. Don't attack Jesus, but surrender your life to him because he knows best and he wants to use you in a great and mighty way. Thank you for listening. Until next time, keep standing strong, my friends. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening and keep standing strong in the Word of God.